as I read. And as, as you're standing, I know that's hard to see, okay? I did bad, okay? Uh, but I'm introducing you to a, a, a Bible translation that I really like. I've spent some time with. And I'm going to start. I'm going to use it through Luke uh, and see how it goes. OK, so this is by no means a commitment. Um, just I'm just trying it out. It has a lot of things and this is not for now, but uh, it's it's good. I like it. Uh, it's a revision of the New American Standard, which I was I use often. Uh, and so some things have been uh, updated and, and um, edited anyway. So uh, I like it. So <clears throat> I'm going to read from it. And it's so it's here on the. The screen's small. Uh, I didn't know how my, my screen is this big and this screen is this big and you're that far away. Uh, but it's also in your bulletin so or in the sermon guide there. This is the translation that's printed here. So if you want to follow along, uh, and I did that on purpose so that you could have this in front of you throughout the message. All right, so Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. <clears throat> And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it happened that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount called of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you in which as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this because the Lord has need of it. So when those who were sent departed, they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and after they threw their garments on the colt, they put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments on the road. Now as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, The whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God, rejoicing with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered and said, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he cried over it, saying, If you knew in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do. For all the people hung upon every word he said. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us in your wisdom, by your providence, this word in front of us. And that we can have full confidence that you have preserved your word to us today. But beyond the series of history by which we've received the Bible, we also confess 
that within the pages of Scripture, we see and hear the voice of the Holy Spirit attesting to the truthfulness of your Scriptures. So, Lord, would you help us to see? Would you help us to hear? Would you soften our hearts and tamp down our pride that we might humbly come and receive that what you have for us? And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said, heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So Lord, would you speak? Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. If you remember, which it's okay, uh, a large majority of the book of Luke up to this point has been Jesus heading towards this point. So about from the end of chapter 9-ish, Jesus sets his face. If you go, I think it's 958. Jesus sets his face in chapter 9 of Luke to go to Jerusalem. He sets his face like a flint. He's, or some translations, he's determined to go to Jerusalem. So from the end of chapter 9 up until this point in chapter 19, it has been devoted to Jesus' road to Jerusalem. His road to Jerusalem. That he is intentionally, he's intentionally born, he intentionally ministers to get to this point. And better said, to get to the end of this week. If you were to look, you know, when we begin uh, Passion Week, the week before Easter, Palm Sunday, this is Palm Sunday, right? The triumphal entry is Palm Sunday, that first Sunday where Jesus rides into Jerusalem and they're, they're waving the palm branches and other, other gospels record that they're saying, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Hosanna meaning something along the lines of, oh, save, you know, save, oh, Lord. And so he's coming now as king. Now, this is significant because the gospel of Luke really is bookended by king, right? Kingship, kingdom. All of the gospels begin with some notion of kingdom, particularly Matthew and Mark. They begin Jesus's first words that the gospel writers uh, write down for us. His first words are that he's coming to preach the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel that there's this interlocking notion in the gospels that you can't miss the kingdom of God if you're going to understand the gospel. You can't miss the the kingdom of God if you're going to understand the gospel. That yes, the gospel is Christ crucified according to the scriptures, that he was dead three days in the ground according to the scriptures. He rose victorious from the grave according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But all of that lodged within the reality, one, that Jesus is king and he's coming to inaugurate the first time around to set up the kingdom of God. And if he's setting up the kingdom of God, then he's setting up, he's posting it against rival kingdoms. Or better said, a rival kingdom. A kingdom of light versus a kingdom of darkness. A kingdom of freedom versus a kingdom of enslavement, etc. The kingdom of Christ, who is the rightful ruler and heir of this and us, versus the kingdom of 
Satan or the adversary who has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says. That he is gripping within his demonic grasp people who are deluded, who are deceived, who are in rebellion against God. And unless they are liberated from their captivity to sin, Satan and death, they will spend eternity at distance from God under the wrath of God. Kingdom of God is significant. And in fact, before this passage was the parable of the ten minas, which is very similar to the parable of the talents. But I want you to see how that parable links with the idea of the kingdom of God. At the very beginning of that parable, if you were to scroll up in whatever translation you might have, because I didn't provide this for you. But in verse 11 of chapter 19. Now, while they were listening to these things, right, he's the beginning of chapter 19 begins with the wee little man Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree. Jesus coming and saying, um, I've, I've come to seek and to save the lost. And this is the that's verse 10 for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, he's on a rescue mission. Verse 11. Now, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Why? Two reasons. Why? Because he was near Jerusalem, which is where he's been headed Two, And they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So Jesus tells the parable of the ten minas, which I'm going to outline in just a second, because one, he's near Jerusalem and that has kingly ramifications. It has kingly. It's a it's a kingly picture. Jesus coming into Jerusalem And they were under the misunderstanding that the kingdom of God was going to come immediately. Even his disciples, even the people who have been coming around, hanging out with him, they were believing that the kingdom of God was going to come immediately. And so it begins to outline in this parable that a man has, uh, he goes to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself. Verse 12. And he calls 10 of his slaves and he says, engage in business until I come back. But they hated him. Those who are in charge of his estate hated him and they wanted what belonged to him for themselves. And so what happens as he sends um, or and it happened that when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered these slaves to whom he had given them the money be called to him so that he might know how much they had made in business. Right. So you might be familiar with the parable of the talents. This guy had five, he turned it into ten. This guy had this many, he turned it into this one. And there's the one guy who had the one, and he buried in the ground because he was scared of the master. But all of that idea of accountability in this age is rooted in the fact of God's kingdom and Christ's kingship. Okay, now, what does that matter? Well, if the, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Um, a guy named S.M. Baugh or Bao, B-A-U-G-H. He's a New Testament scholar. I never met him or heard him to know, say, how do you pronounce your last name? It's one of those things you read in a book and you're like, I don't know. So that guy, um, he says that the kingdom of God is the new creation. Kingdom of God is new creation or a better way of saying it. The kingdom of God, or or another way of saying it, or part and parcel with the way of saying it, is that the kingdom of God is God's kingly rule manifested in all of life. That the reason things are broken out of joint and wrong in this world 
is because of the rebellion of our first parents that we live in a fallen world, as we like to say. We live in a fallen world, so there's fallen repercussions. We, we grow old, we grow tired. More dramatically, we sin and rebel against God. There's sicknesses and there's death in this world. There's wars or wars about to be because we live in a fallen world. We, both, um, we are both perpetrators, we commit sin, and we are victims of sin. Sin is any breaking of the law of God, and the law of God is a revelation of the very moral character of God Himself. So the kingdom of God is God restoring order. It's a new creation because as God came and He created, and it was like a formless void in Genesis chapter 1, and He began to speak to it saying, let there be light. Upon what he had made, an order and distinction was made in creation. The same happens with the kingdom of God. But the word that is spoken is not let there be light. But the word that is spoken is the gospel that Jesus is king. The word by which Christ rules and reigns in this age until he returns is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this, and this has intense ramifications for how we go about our business as citizens of the kingdom. This, this perf, there's a perfect segue from the end of chapter 2 of Haggai to now. That's why I, why I did this, or why the Lord did this, better said. Where he is going, he's conquering and he's setting up Zerubbabel as his representation representative of his promises to David and that God is going to keep his promises, that he's going to set up his king. And when he sets up his king, he's going to set up his kingdom. And in the kingdom of God, there is no more sickness or sorrow or tears or death or sin. All of that is done away with. So the kingdom of God is simultaneously inaugurated or already And it will be yet. It is already, but it is not yet. It will be consummated. If you're looking for big words, inaugurated, consummated, smaller words, already, not yet. So that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he is this is the this is the alreadiness of the kingdom. The king is coming into the kingly city. He's coming into the city of David. This is the city of kings. And he's going to set up his rule. Can you imagine what the crowd is feeling? All of the brokenness of this world is going to be thrown in the trash. The Romans are going to be expelled and the king is going to set up there at the palace in Jerusalem. And he's going to rule in the reign in a greater kingdom than even Solomon. This is why they believed the kingdom was going to come immediately. They thought they were going to see it, physical eyes, immediately. They were going to see some angelic troop of angel armies come and wipe out the overlord Romans. They were going to see Christ ruling and the law of God imposed and people believing upon Him and all of these Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in a blink. And too often Christians, we act the same way. Because we, rather than, just like some who believed in the kingdom of God, 
But they took up the arm of politics like the Sadducees or they took up the arm of the sword like the Zealots. And they believed these these different sections of Jews. They believed that by what they were doing, they were going to cause the kingdom of God to come to bear in front of their physical eyes. Either through political means, the Sadducees, through religious rigor like the Pharisees or through the sword like the Zealots. Now, there were others, but we're just going to leave with those three. And what is it when Christians get so absorbed with one of those three? Fill in the blank. With our political machinations, right? If you just vote for the right person, then all glory is going to come down. I just heard this garbage in a church. I wasn't there. I mean, I heard of it. How about that? Heard of it in a church not far from here. And dear ones, you could have all of the conservative people you want in all of the offices. Or if you're you're the other side, flip the script. And the kingdom of God is not going to come by those means. Because Jesus exercises his rule and reign in this age by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. And his people living it out. We're in the already, but not the yet. And I can't tell you what damage we've done. This is not point of sermon, but the damage we've done to the witness of Christ in America in the last four or five years, because we bled, we missed this distinction. You now listen to me before you, well, you throw what you got. All right. I don't care. But uh, before you throw something at me, vote as a Christian, operate in this age as a Christian. But do not, don't conflate, don't mix up how it is that Jesus is exercising his rule and reign right now. Right? It's, you need, you need to have these distinctions in place. Because this is how Christians have lived and breathed and thrived under favorable political circumstances and under unfavorable political circumstances. When they are being, when they're free to preach like we are today, or when they are oppressed and hunted down like they were in the early church or in other places of the world. And yet the gospel goes on because Jesus' scepter, Francis Turretin, the uh, 17th century guy, theologian, don't worry about it. But he, but he says, he says that the scepter, right? The scepter, the of kingly rule, the scepter by which Jesus rules, really looking at Psalm 110, but, that's another. but the scepter by which Jesus rules right now is the word of the gospel. And we're believing that as we share the gospel and as we live out the reality that Jesus is Lord and he has died for us and he's risen victorious and he's coming back one day, that people will believe because God said so. Oh, hot and bothered. We believe because there's a promise out there that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that we look at the end of the book in Revelation that there's a whole multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, nation. That somehow we go from this to that. And it's by the promise of God as His people obey Him and sharing the gospel. Being faithful unto death and receiving the crown. Revelation 2.10 so Jesus comes into and he comes triumphant. He is the, this is the entrance of the triumphant king. The rightful heir of all that is. And he rides on a colt. Never been sat upon before. 
He rides in fulfillment of Scripture, Zechariah 9, 9. Um, Psalm 118 is quoted in verse 38. So kind of lumping those first two points together, Jesus comes triumphant and he arrives according to plan. Everything is according to plan from all throughout Jesus' life, but particularly from this moment onward. Jesus goes and says, this is going to happen, and it happens. And it shows up again with the Lord's Supper, right? Where are we going to have the, the meal? We'll go to this guy, and it's going to happen, this is going to happen. All the way through, Jesus is not just a victim. He is the one who is sovereignly orchestrating the means of his own demise. He's there on purpose. He's, things are happening according to purpose. Or as the writer of or Luke, it's the same guy, Luke records in Acts chapter 2 that he's being delivered over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That Jesus is not just only surrendering to the will of God that he is, but he's also executing the will of God. As he says, go here and do this and go here and do this and this is going to happen. So he enters in as the triumphant king, writing according to plan. And what I want you to see as, as, as you maybe come back to read this, or as we keep going here a little bit deeper into this passage, please note how people respond to Jesus the king. How do they respond? And then, and you know where I'm going. You know the, the preacher segue. How will you respond This is not just a Bible lecture. Pray to God it's not. I'm not here just to inform you of things. But you must respond. There there are three, there's, there's two explicit and there's one implicit responses that are here. There are those who are, when Jesus rides in in verse 37, there this whole multitude of disciples are praising, rejoicing, they're shouting. They just can't get over it that the king is coming in. And they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven, which is a very strange phrase. You don't see it very often. Peace on earth, Luke's gospel begins with, but peace in heaven. That the only way that we, the rebels here down here, have peace with the God who is in heaven is by means of what Jesus is doing. Either if there's going to be peace in heaven between God and man... It is only by the blood of Christ. Otherwise, we are at enmity and hostility in our sin against God. But peace in heaven. So they're either rejoicing, praising, or there are the Pharisees who are saying, hey, this is not in order. Rebuke your disciples. And in fact, later on, we see that some of them, the chief priests and scribes in verse 47, who would have been not just Pharisees, but they would have been Sadducees as well. They reject. So there's either acceptance, rejoicing, rejection, outright rejection, or there's all those unnamed, unaccounted for people in all the white space of your Bible who just sort of (laughs) another day. There's the apathetic, I don't carers. That's what I'm trying to convey with my shoulder shrug. If Henry were here, he would say, Daddy, that's not funny. I need to make him t-shirts. Anyways, uh, so that 
But what you need to see is that while those three might be happening, and those three are very alive and well in our culture, there are people who say, praise God, Jesus is Lord, let's follow Him. Come, Lord Jesus, let's do this thing. There are those who say, no, no, no. They reject Jesus, they reject God. And then there's a whole multitude of people who say, And what you need to see is that outright rejection and apathy are the same thing. Outright rejection, no way, and me are the same thing. There's no way that you can apprehend Jesus as he is and walk away saying, that's a rejection of Christ. So there's really only two ways to live and there's two ways to respond. And we see that at the very beginning. And also at the very, at verse 40, we see the inevitability of praise. Just as a little aside. If these are quiet, even the stones will cry out. And it's a subtle hint. One, that God will always have a worshiping community. But it's also a subtle hint that we're not the only ones who are hoping for Jesus' return. We're not the only ones who are hoping that Jesus is going to set things right. And that the kingdom of God will impact The kingdom of God, when it's fully consummated, when it's fully realized, is not just soul disembodied people in a spiritual existence. It is a physical renewal of the cosmos. Look at the end of the book. Look, I saw there's a new heavens and a new earth. Renewal of the whole cosmos with a new Jerusalem coming down. You seem unconvinced. But this idea that the stones even will cry out. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that even creation is groaning for the adoption of the sons of God. That what we are involved with, with the kingdom of God and the gospel of God, that we are the very beginning of renewal as the gospel is preached and you believe on it. I pray that you believe upon Christ. It is the very beginning of the renewal that's going to ripple out through all of creation when Christ returns. I'm not unbacking that right now, but it's a subtle hint. But then we see the king's heart. He comes in riding, triumphant, according to plan. And then we see his heart. And what I mean by we see his heart, we see him weeping. It's not the only place that Jesus weeps in the gospel, but he weeps here over a whole city. He is the exact opposite of Jonah here. right? Jonah, who's all curmudgeony and grumpy that Jesus saves people. God saves people. In Nineveh, he's angry about it, but here Jesus is lamenting that they have missed it. That Jerusalem has rejected by and large. That all of the Old Testament rejection of God's people against God is culminating on this moment. When Jesus comes into the city and they reject him, it is the final rejection. Do you remember the other... One of the other parables that Jesus tells where he sends the, 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 the guy who owns the land sends servant after servant to get fruit from the land and they, they kill some and they kick out some and they beat out some and they finally he sends his only son thinking they will respect my son. And you know what happens in the parable. They kill him thinking that they could have that which belonged to the owner. But the final straw was the slaying of the son. In the same way, the final strike, final straw, the final draw 
the camel, the, the needle that broke the camel's back, whatever you need here, the last thing is that Jerusalem rejects the Messiah. And what happens? If you only knew, Jesus says, if you even knew the things which make for peace. But they don't. They've actually been hidden from their eyes. Their rebellion and rejection has mounted up like calluses over their spiritual eyes so they can't see Jesus who He is. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. This is not a future event for us. This is in the past. This is 70 A.D. 70 A.D., after, there's a whole story, after the, the Jewish wars, they, they tried to buck the Romans. The, the Romans come in and just blitz Jerusalem. They raise Jerusalem to the ground. R-A-Z-E. They burn it to the ground. They tear down the temple. They tear down the walls. And if you go to Jerusalem today, they still have the wailing wall. And that's it. Left. This is past tense. This is the judgment of God upon a rebellious people. And we need to understand that of these two responses, only one leads to life, but the other involves judgment. That if we continue to reject Jesus, judgment is expected. If you continue to reject Jesus, judgment is expected. If in countries where Jesus has been proclaimed and preached and believed on, if they continue to, to reject Jesus, they can experience judgment. They can expect judgment. But we see the lamenting of Jesus over this fact. He is not clapping his hands, spinning around and look, see how judgment's going to come. This is too often how Christians treat our cultural adversaries. But Jesus laments. And if I may say as an aside, tell the truth of the gospel. Tell the truth that it's Jesus in heaven or it's no Jesus in hell. But don't you ever be one who rejoices over that latter fact. Don't you ever be one who applauds as people go to hell. Don't you ever be one who says they finally got what they deserve. Because, dear one, if you were to get what you deserve, you would be in the same place. And all that you have received is of grace in Christ. We are no better. We are no better. We are no better. If there's any goodness in us, it is only of Christ. And let us have the heart of Christ, the heart of the King, to lament over those, to cry and to weep over those who would walk away from God. And finally, we see the King's judgment. I mentioned this is a, the, the lament over Jerusalem. Verse 43 is a, a corporate judgment upon a whole city, upon a whole people. But the judgment of Jerusalem, the judgment of Israel opens up the door of life unto the Gentiles. But then he comes in verse 45 and he comes in to clear out the temple. And so we see the king's judgment in action. Now, as we're, if we're going to understand this, I'm going to try to click through it. 
As if we're going to understand this, we have to understand the significance of the temple. Like this is God's presence among his people. This should be where God is enthroned. King. When you, see, when you hear the language throne in the Bible, more so than crown, you hear the language throne in the Bible, that is kingdom language. God is enthroned between the cherubim there. Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim there, if you remember these stories. God is enthroned among his people at the temple. That is God's throne room inside the Holy of Holies. This is his presence. This is his rule. And this is supposed to be a place where all of the nations are summoned. Not just Israel, but all of the nations. And as Jesus is there flipping over tables, he reminds them of this by quoting Isaiah 56, 7. So let me read that in the full and fullness in Isaiah 56, verse 7. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them glad in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Lord Yahweh, who gathers the banished of Israel, declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. Yet others. This is the same thing that Jesus says in John chapter 10 when he says, I'm the good shepherd and I have sheep who are not of this fold. They're not of the fold of Israel, but they're out there among the nations. And dear ones, that's still true. But this was supposed to be, the temple was supposed to be a rallying point for all those who would confess faith in the Lord of Israel, in Yahweh of hosts. And yet, rather than welcoming the foreigner and welcoming the nations, they set up trading posts in the place where they ought to be worshiping, thus excluding those who were supposed to be in. They were setting it up in the court of the Gentiles. If you were to look at a picture of the, of the temple, it's like concentric rectangles almost. Not quite, but concentric rectangles, not circles. But, but working out from the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and the, this court and that court. And, and finally, there's the court of the Gentiles where they could come and worship and they could come and engage in this life. And it's there. It's there. They were getting in the way. They were getting in the way of the king's mission to the nations. They believed that they themselves were somehow so important that the nations would not matter. And he flips over the tables and he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. And as you heard for all the nations, you've made it a robber's den. That's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 7, 11. And so Jesus kicks them out, makes room for people to worship. And then he takes up his post teaching daily in the temple. Begins to espouse the kingdom of God in the throne room of God, so to speak. Where God would be enthroned amongst his people, the king takes his place and begins to articulate and to speak the kingdom. So the king arrives But the inauguration of the kingdom is not yet here. This is beginning. This is the beginning of the beginning of the alreadiness of the kingdom. I know that's super confusing. But it's in the cross work of Christ. It's in the atonement work of Christ that we'll see later in the gospel. That the kingdom of God is brought to bear. But here we have the king making room. We see him arriving triumphantly. We see him arriving according to plan. 
We see his heart even over those who reject him. But God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel chapter 18. Jesus does not delight in the death of the wicked. He does not delight in the demolition of Jerusalem. But judgment is for those who reject. But life and peace and new creation is for those who believe, who hear this message of Christ the King and believe. Remember what Paul, remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Whoever is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Has the kingly touch of Christ come upon your life? Has your sin been subdued? Has your hostility towards God and his reign over your life been done away with and abolished in Christ? Are you a new creation today because you have trusted in Christ? Is that evident in your life? Or are you harboring, believing that you can somehow fulfill all of your hopes and dreams? Or humanity can fulfill all of our hopes and dreams by progress or by education or by financial wealth or by wealth or health. Or if we could all just get along. If you're holding those hopes without Christ reigning in your heart. Then that's idolatry. And in fact, all of those hopes will only bring despair and hopelessness. All of our hopes for progress as a, as a community or as a people or as a nation or as a world, if they are not rooted in Christ, then they're further extensions of the, of the rebellion of the Tower of Babel rather than willful subjection to Christ. So that all of our dreams... All of our hopes, they must arise from and find their terminus in God and his kingdom. Because it's in the kingdom of God that all of the hopes that you hold, that you hold right now, the hopes that you have for you and for your kids and for your grandkids, the hopes for those who are far from God that they have for their community and for the world, that all of those things are shadows of what the king is going to do in the new creation. And that new creation has begun. And Christ is ever doing it until it blossoms anew when he returns. Or it blossoms to the full when he returns. So the question is, how have you responded to Jesus? Have you trusted him in faith? Have you said, I am a sinner, but Christ has died to save me. And he rose three days later. The son of God died for you. Do you believe this? Is he your king? Can you say Jesus is Lord wholeheartedly? Look at what he has done for you. Look at the gospel. The gospel is not about your effort. It's about what King Jesus has done for you. Do you trust him? Do you believe on him? And if you have not, don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait for the walls to be torn down. Don't wait for the siege barricades to be mounted up in your life. 
Don't wait for the deathbed. You don't know if you'll have one. Get right with God today and believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Christian, you look at the judgment of God and it should make us weep. But the judgment of God is not only retribution. The judgment of God is restoration. That that once was supposed to be a house of prayer becomes a house of prayer. So sometimes we have to walk through judgment in this life. For the Christian, that's discipline. For us to be who God has made us to be. Don't grow discouraged in the trials. Don't grow discouraged when things are difficult. And you don't know where you've, you've lost your job, your relationships are wrecked. Christians, don't lose hope. If Christ was perfected through what he suffered... If the king is perfected through what he suffered, the writer of Hebrews says, so will we. So don't lose heart. King Jesus is not yet done with the kingly work of bringing the kingdom to bear for all time. Pray. Lord, we thank you and we pray that you would use these efforts and that you would lodge this word of yours. That your gospel, your word would lodge in hearts and good soil. That you would hinder the efforts of the adversary now to pluck these seeds away. Lord, would you summon us to response? Would we see it's either belief, trust, repentance, faith, or it is rejection? There is no neutrality here. Would you give grace for those who have never believed that they would today? Would you guard your people? Would you guard your people in such an age that they might be faithful to Christ and his gospel? That we would say until you return, Jesus is king. We pray this in his name. Amen.